Welcome back to Jessica and Carla's High School Reunion. This week, we spoke to Hank Almy. After a very short and rebellious streak studying economics and poli-sci at Rice University, he finally came to his senses and gave into his passions for science and mathematics. And the rest is history. Hank has had an amazing career working for the US government on super secret projects many of which included solving complex mathematical and scientific problems. He'd have to kill us to let us know what they actually were. But recently, he has found himself excited to use his wisdom and his well-earned battle scars to mentor and coach younger colleagues to unlock their potential. In his free time, he loves cooking for friends, solving complex mathematical puzzles, being a dad, and building with Legos. Hank is full of surprises. You are gonna love learning from him and from this incredible conversation. Please listen and enjoy. Jessica, you're more than welcome to vent about parenting on this podcast any time. You know, I'm just gonna say, <laughs> rather than venting, I would like to use this opportunity to advertise that there are three lovely children available to <laughs> rent, to adopt, um, variety of ages. And um, they're just delightful. Are they good workers? Are they good workers? Um, on things they are interested in, they are certainly, uh, let me put it this way, they're capable of working. Oh. <laughs> okay. Okay, you're not selling them too. I know, well, that's okay. I know, that's okay. I know. Maybe like 89ers. How about organ? You have some, there, here's. I feel like organ transplants, <laughs> they would be pretty good at, you know? Good. Anyway, good. no, it's been, kidney. it's been a, yeah, <laughs> yeah, kidney. Um, it's been, it's been a little bit of a, of a rough uh, few days with parenting. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. So. That's, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. I'm, there are lots of wonderful things about them, but when you get emails yeah. from the school about all of the incomplete assignments mm. and then the teenager asks like, how dare you try to micromanage me? Like, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. How's your life, Carla? Yeah. <laughs> good. Good. I, I, right now I have few complaints, but, um. <laughs> But I am excited, <laughs> and that's actually good. Like you can't, you can't really ask for anything okay. better. Sometimes you're just I like, like that. I need to write it all down, and then I'll go. You know, it's not that bad. Yes, today yeah, we have yeah, Hank Olmi joining us. I know, and I think we've rescheduled this a couple times, so I'm really excited to finally make it happen. Me too. Um, and it's you know it was fun um, to talk to Chris Eisbach a few uh, weeks ago, and then to have Hank because they were such good friends. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, I was going back into the yearbook and, and just kind of refreshing myself. And it's really fun when you when you get a chance to see someone who signed your yearbook, because suddenly it brings back like, oh, I had this class with that person or whatever. Mm-hmm. So um, Hank reminded me in his signet in his uh, in his writing on my on his yearbook page that we had two years of English back to back together. And so mm-hmm. um, that, you know, you get to know a lot of you get to know people in English class, I think, because you have that opportunity to sh- share a little bit more of yourself than you might in say like a math class. Um, those humanities mm-hmm. classes, you know, you talk about yourself, your thoughts, your your hopes, your you talk about literature. And so mm-hmm. I remember that was great. I had him in Mr. O'Connor's class junior year and Mr. Gray's class uh, senior year. That is true. What do you remember about Hank? I just remember Hank as always being um, brilliant at science, which um, was always impressive to me because that was not an area in which I shine. Um, Mm -hmm. Really a thoughtful person, very kind um, and open to different people's perspectives. And I wonder if that's one of the reasons that you recall him fondly from English is that rather than being someone who kind of leaps to, I'm going to defend my position on this, he's got curiosity. And um, Mm -hmm. I'm I remember him being just someone in class that was nice to chat with and um, had a big brain. Do you remember any of the things he was super involved in in school? Was he in on the debate team? I believe he did do debate. That was such a big... Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure what else, actually. We'll have to ask. We'll have to find out. That's right. Maybe in our in our flash round, he'll disclose some of the things. Oh, and here he comes. Woo-woo. Hey. <laughs> hello, Hank. Hello, hello. Y'all are talking about me behind my back, I bet. <laughs> we were. <laughs> How did you guess? Because you've listened to some of these podcasts and you know that we sit indeed, around indeed. and talk about you first <laughs> and say all sorts of nasty things about you. Right. You look so good. I love your beard, Thank by you. the way. I love it. Me too. It, uh, I've gotten to the point where like, even though I've, I've been clean shaven a lot more of my life than I've not been. But now when I look in the mirror, if I don't have a beard, I don't look like Hank mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's handsome. I look really. at pictures of me clean shaven. It's like, I don't know. That's Hank's Eagleton. <laughs> well, it's funny. Cause I was just looking at your books. Cause that's what I do before mm-hmm. these events. Um, and you were so, you have such the baby face. You know, even as a senior in high school, it was so sweet. Um. <laughs> um, so I always like to, uh, I'll, this is always the first question I ask. I interview a lot of candidates these days. Mm. And so I always ask, and I use this tone of voice, why are you here? But then I sort of like do it in like, we could be doing, you could be doing anything with the next hour or 90 minutes, however long we're talking about. Anything. Why do you want to do this? Are you asking and us it's not that a, question? It's not, yeah, I'm asking really y'all. It's not a hostile question. It is. Um, well, I'll tell you. I'm always interested in what it means to people. Yeah. To be doing I'll tell doing. you for myself, when I started that, when we talked about this initially, I wanted to mm-hmm. do it because I thought, well, this will be a fun collaboration that Carla and I can do together. And I have such fond mm-hmm. memories of my classmates at the academy and a lot of curiosity. Like, what are they doing now? And the more we've done them, 
the more I look forward to the conversations because I always mm-hmm. leave feeling inspired in some way. And also this may sound weird, but comforter comforted in a way, just like the humanness okay. of all of our struggles and it puts some things in perspective. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know, I think especially as a parent of teenagers, well, actually I only mm-hmm. have one teenager now, the others are 20 and up. Um, just realizing that the way people seem when they're 18 years old is so different from mm-hmm. the way they are 30 years later. And when one like this, I think they could grow up to be lovely humans like my class. <laughs> fair enough. Fair yeah. enough. Yeah. And I, well, I was just going to add also all of that. I don't want to be repetitive. And so a lot of what you said, I, I agree with and, and would um, say ditto, ditto. But I would also say that I just am also really interested, quite frankly, in like this particular age in life. We're like mm-hmm. 50, 52, somewhere in that range. And, you know, you have so 53. many. Right. 53. You have so many years in a, in a life, so many weeks in mm-hmm. a life. Um, and we are sort of at this interesting inflection point where a lot of us are starting to see our own children leave the mm-hmm. house. We're in a new phase. Um, we're seeing actually, in, in my opinion, like the first real signs of aging, you know, our eyesight starting to go, our, <laughs> we can't necessarily do the same things physically that maybe we did, except for Chris Travis, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> maybe, uh, you know, 10 years ago, or even five years ago. Yeah, exactly. Put those glasses on. And it's kind of like this interesting moment, like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do with the next um, right. 50 years of our lives if we're lucky? Right. And um, it's just such this great pivot point. And it's been okay. so fun to kind of hear the stories that have taken people to this moment. We've got a lot of wisdom. Mm-hmm. We may not have the same like ability to be quick and fast. But we've got all this like wisdom. Um, scar tissue. Uh-huh. And we've got some scar tissue. We've got some stories to tell. We've grown a lot. And so what do we make of all of that? So that's what I'm also interested in, along with just reconnecting with people. And that's been joyful and hearing their stories and illuminating those stories and allowing people to, um, to I think, even self-reflect a little bit. One of the things that we've noticed is that these interviews have provided something for the participants to be able to be Mm -hmm. a little reflective in their life, too. Excellent. So that's why we're here. (laughs) Why are you here? Oh, I'm a narcissist. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, for a lot of the same reasons. I mean, I uh, one of the things that I have discovered about myself, especially in the last, say, decade, is that I'm sort of like an amateur philosopher. And, um, well, it depends on who you talk to. I'm either an amateur philosopher or an overanalyzer. Um, I've spent a lot of time thinking about, like, sort of, like, trying to pull things apart mm-hmm and understand how they work. And I used to do that with like my toys and machines and computers, and I still do that. But uh, now I'm trying to sort of like pull myself apart and other people apart, try to understand mm-hmm. why, does, why is that person acting like that? Why are mm-hmm. they thinking that? Why am I thinking that? Why am I feeling this way? Mm. And uh, some you know, discussions like this, it's sort of like, uh, 
I almost feel like I'm in one of my therapy sessions. I do all of my, I, I see a therapist every other week and uh, we do telehealth. Boy, that, that was great. Started doing that because of the pandemic, but just mm-hmm. never stopped. It's so nice to not have to drive like all the way out to wherever the hell my therapist's office was. Mm-hmm. I never, never I went agree. there. Now he's in Delaware. And so being able to just do it here from my home office, very comfortable surroundings. I like that. And so this is, you know, therapeutic to a sense, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we've sort of already started, so we don't have to restart. Um, okay. But what I, I think we always ask the question at the beginning of these podcasts mm-hmm. to tell, have you tell us a, a little bit of your journey, um, the key okay. inflection points, the moments that have mattered, the moments of learning along the way. And so we start with the same question with everyone, as you know, uh, which is, mm-hmm. Hank, what have you been doing for the last 35 years? Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, it's a little bit like what I was listening to Eisbach's, um episode today on my way home. And he said something about, you know, he needs to get a real job. And uh, I, uh, <laughs> there is the, uh, I do have that sense. I sort of sometimes, so, so basically I've been working for the government as a contractor of one sort or another um, for 35 years. Too many the U S government but, or yeah. The, okay. Um, so I, I figured I, you know, I've been at national labs. Now I'm at a, uh, at what's called a uh, UARC, a UARC, University Affiliated Research Center. That's Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Lab. So, but the journey that took me there, so we graduate. I go to Houston um, to Rice, and that was sort of the first inflection point, I guess, in that I went to Rice intending to study, we can believe it, economics and political science, hmm. um, maybe with a little English even though I had been and excelled in sort of STEM fields when I was, when I was at the Academy, but I'd sort of taken a turn and started exploring some of these other things. Now, when I got to Rice, middle of the first semester, I sort of realized that I was always there for multivariable calculus for some of the electrical engineering introductory course I was taking. The poli sci courses I was taking were interesting enough and, you know, I engaged, but they weren't what I had the passion for. And what I realized is, uh, to a certain extent, I kind of liked how when I talked about becoming an econ major, watching the reaction of my father. Um, and so... Uh, <laughs> it got under his skin re- a little. Right. But I realized that there was, while it was an interesting subject matter, and Gareth Jenkins did a really good job of bringing it to life, um, I didn't have a passion for it. I really had a passion for mathematics. I had a passion for computer engineering, electrical engineering, circuits, stuff like that. Fortunately, I ran into a uh, a roommate of mine who was in that program, and we talked for a while. He said, yep, you need to be in this. So I sort of switched over, and then I ended up in computer engineering hmm. uh, and in mathematics, too. Um, it was sort of like I was an accidental mathematics <laughs> major. I was having a discussion with a math prof at the end of my, during, at the beginning of my final semester at Rice, I was having a conversation with a math prof and he was, you were in a lot of my math classes. Aren't you, why aren't you a math major? And I said, well, you know, I'm an electrical engineering major. So he said, well, wait a minute. Did you take this, 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 and this? Yes. And this, this, and we sat there and there and it, basically I qualified for a math major. If I dropped a couple of courses that I was taking just to fill out the schedule and pick up a couple of math courses. So I became a math major for uh, a semester. 
So that was, but inflection point number one, I think was, I learned that actually my old man was right. And I need to, uh, about me and my interests. He's not right about many things, but he was right <laughs> about that. And, uh, and so then after that, I, uh, wait, Jessica, to... Jessica, there's hope for you. Yeah. Do you see? <laughs> Apologies, Hank, but I came into this three minutes before you arrived. I came in like, I just need to give up my children to another family <laughs> who can better steward them towards productive lives. Rehoming. I'm, I'm rehoming. So it's, it's, right. it gives, it, it, we're laughing about it, but truly it does give me some sense of like, just calm down. Sometimes some of the few things you say that are correct are going to sink in. Yeah. Well, it's also, uh, I think one of the, another thing that my father said that I thought was just, didn't think much of when he said it, but I think it's very wise in retrospect was he said, you can't live your kid's life for them. He said that to me as a way of saying, Hank, you're making a stupid effing decision. I can't even remember what we were talking about. He said, can't live your life, kid's life for them. Go off and do whatever stupid shit you want to do. And, yeah, right. Oh, by the way, that is a question. What is your standard for um, salty language? We love it. Oh. Love it. Take it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We don't um, like So we anyway. Yeah. After, um, but after I finished at Rice, I, uh, I'd done some internships at Los Alamos National Lab. And so I got kind of interested in computational physics and uh, the whole national lab scene. So I, uh, I applied to several graduate programs, got into some, didn't get into others. But one of the ones that I got into that I was very interested in was uh, what's called the Department of Applied Science at University of California at Davis. Mm. And that's basically your was a, uh, an, we'll call it an apprenticeship program for the National Lab. So Edward Teller set it up in the 60s. And uh, my father got his PhD at that same program. In fact, I was, I might be the only legacy PhD because I think that part has got folded into something else. But there was a professor, John DeGroote, who was in my PhD committee, who was also in my father's. And, oh uh, my gosh. This, we both had the same statistical mechanics professor. My father was once in my office looking at some photocopied notes that my StatMac professor had passed out, and he recognized them from the 1960s. So uh, <laughs> I'd been using the same notes for all that time. Great. Anyway, so I was I was at Los Alamos and uh, finished my PhD there, and then I uh, meandered back to. Uh, um, or I was Livermore, then I meandered back to Los Alamos. I spent about eight years there, and that was sort of inflection point number two, maybe. You know, I'm sort of leading out getting married, I guess, and getting divorced. Those are inflection points, too. But uh, the, uh, the thing that I sort of felt that I learned there was that, A, how incredibly privileged we are, Um. I basically get to dork around looking at equations, writing code, and somebody will pay me to do it. And that was just, um, wow. Mm. You know, it's like the more you like your job, the more they pay you because like a specialized skill set if you're dumb enough to want to mm -hmm. go into it, right? But uh, I also learned that like while nuclear weapons, if you, I worked in the weapons program for quite a while. And if you know what they're for, they're some of the most fascinating devices that there are. If you're studying them, there is chemistry, um, 
hydrodynamics, there's nuclear physics, there's everything. And we were writing computer programs to solve all those things. Fascinating. But we are sort of, uh, there's like this decline and fall of the Roman Empire sort of aspect mm. to it in that when I came into that program, we were 10 years past when we had done a full-up nuclear test. The last one we did is in 92. I came in 2002. And we spent a lot of time spending and a lot of money and effort working on computer programs that would sort of simulate the performance of some of these devices. And then you'd be tweaking them to match data from mm. you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. But really, that's all you had not totally truthful, but close. Um, and so no matter how much fancy modeling and simulation you do, testing of parts, stuff like that, eventually you have to go out and ask Mother Nature, did we get this right? And we're not doing that. We don't, we don't test nuclear weapons anymore. And so it sort of felt like we were studying these dead devices. To me, other people would have a dis different view. That was my viewpoint. Mm -hmm. So when the opportunity came to move out east here and start working at the... Uh, Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory, um, it was very uh, engaging because now I'm working on a bunch of different systems for, um, for the government, mostly for the Department of Defense, a little bit for the intelligence community, but looking at, you know, it's like every few months you're looking at a different system that has a different set of things that we want to look at and analyze and understand and help the sponsor understand or helping the sponsors make decisions about where they're going to invest, um, what systems are most important, what systems are a little less important, where they're doing a good job, where they're screwing things up, things like that. But it's always something different. And you're always working on something that is, um, you know, for better or worse, people will actually use. Like, we, we ever used nuclear weapons, the stuff that I was working on, oh my goodness, that was terrible. And in fact, I used to think that if we ever got to where we we're doing underground nuclear testing again, that would be a sign that the geopolitical situation was uh, pretty mm -hmm. rotten. And I don't know that I, I think I'd rather just not test them, even though they're really, really, really cool. But, um, but it was a chance to have sort of more of a direct impact. What were some of the projects um, that you're thinking of that you, you know, people are using and they're coming there. Um, so I have to, I'll have to talk in circles because uh, some of I can't talk about. <laughs> A lot of it I can't talk about. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, um, you can tell us, but then he'd have to kill us, Jessica. <laughs> I, I wouldn't kill you. I'd have we we have people for that. Um, oh God! But he keeps uh, his hands clean. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so there are some big communication systems, say that uh, that uh, some of our friends in the Department of Defense might have to use that we've looked at. Um, I've done, I've worked on developing, like in the last seven, eight years, worked on developing a uh, modeling simulation capability that simulates, you know, certain, I hate talking around this, but simulate certain scenarios of interest that, you know, of, let's say that we need to, we need to understand how our different forces in the field would, would be able to react. Mm -hmm. And that's been really fascinating because you get to sort of dive down, look at the details and, then try to figure out how to cast that computer code. And it really appeals to me because we're using these, these different computational techniques that are called like, one of them is called discrete event simulation. Another one's called Monte Carlo simulation. But basically what they boil down to is we're playing board mm -hmm. games or video games. You're setting up, defining a board game where you have really simple rules 
like any individual event is very simple. You say this event happens and it causes this event to happen, this event to happen, and maybe it happens different. You do it over and over and over again. But you have these really simple rules, and then you have this emergent behavior that comes out of that, this really complicated behavior that you can see. And that's just, that's always fascinating. Mm -hmm. So again, getting paid to do something I probably do for free. You know, how, how privileged is that? Um, but another inflection point has happened like in the last, uh, say, five years in which I've learned that uh, uh, I use the word sort of more experienced staff member or senior staff member. Really what I'm saying, I'm talking around old fart. Um, but being a very senior staff member, something I never thought about when I was when I was uh, earlier in my career is how much I like um, line leadership, which is basically growing people, being in charge of other staff members and supervi supervising people where my focus is not on you do what I told you to do. It's more on you're doing something and my job is to support you and help you grow in your career and to point the way. And when you fall off the path of righteousness to point that out and to have the, uh, you know, the meeting where you're talking to a staff member whose performance is, is not measuring up, but finding a way to sort of get my heart right first, say things like, what am I bringing to the situation? What, you know, why would a perfectly reasonable person being behaving in this way where I want to twist their head off? Um, but doing all that preparation and then finding a way to say, have those conversations where you say, look, we're expecting this, we're seeing this, here's a gap. But talking about it, not in a punitive sense, but in the sense of, I want to get you on the road to righteousness. So then you'd like to start to look at your job, having a job of like clearing the road and pointing the way. And it's really fulfilling to see somebody walk down the path and grow. It's also a real big chance to learn in some of the cases where they don't walk down the path. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've been in a couple of places where a person's gotten canned. And I was feeling really bad about myself for that. But then sort of understanding, looking back at the situation where we talked about this, talked about that, they had every opportunity, right? We're trying mm -hmm. to help. So I never imagined even five, 10 years ago, that that would be something that I really like, but I really like it. Um, and especially I've, uh, I've had a bunch of opportunities to mentor people who are in their first job right out of college. Mm -hmm. We've hired a bunch of people who are younger than my daughter who are, you know, in their first job straight out of university. And so I've interviewed a lot of these people. I keep almost wanting to call them kids. I wanted to call them early career employees. And, um, and to be their supervisors in their first job and to start to see patterns and start to see how some of the things like now I'm supervising people who our generation, you know, we're, we're their parents, right? Um, and see some of the ways we've screwed things up in that. Uh... <laughs> but I mean, there's some patterns that come out like, I've seen, and maybe we were like this, and I just don't remember because it's been 20, 30 years, but I see a lot of kids who don't, it's like they've never failed. Mm -hmm. They've mm -hmm. never gotten knocked on their ass mm -hmm. before. You know, they come in, summa cum laude, blah, 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 blah. Nothing's ever gone wrong for them. And then they come in and sort of two things happen. One is they seem to want a lot of bright line 
I say, we need to accomplish X, they'll say, well, how do you want me to do that? Mm. And uh. I say, FFIO, fucking figure it out. Right? right. Well, I like that. Um, I'm going to use that. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but the point is, they don't feel like it would be okay to try something and get knocked on the right. keister. So, you know, I keep telling them, it's, you know, it's like, I, I don't know how well it worked with my daughter. I'm, keep marching, mm-hmm. right? You're going you're gonna to be going along and you're going to get knocked down. And it's not important that you got knocked down. What's important is what you do afterwards. We pick you up, we dust you off, you keep mm-hmm. going. And I'm much more interested in that behavior than whether you got it right the first mm-hmm. go or not. In fact, if you are constantly hitting it on the first try, I'm not giving you hard enough stuff. So that's one thing. It's like trying to coach these guys that it's okay. It's okay to try something and have it blow up in your face. It's okay to try something, have it not work out. It's okay to think for yourself and you'll screw it up. Like a lot of times, sometimes I'll say, I'll even be like that. I'll be, uh, all right, new staff member, you know, you're going to be doing this. Now you're going to screw this up. (laughs) I know it, (laughs) but that's okay. Right. I want you to just try this. I want you to try to figure it out for yourself. And if you mess it up, We'll figure it out, right? Mm-hmm. But I want you to, to go there. How high you look stakes? Like you're about to say something, Carla. Well, I was just going to ask. I mean, there's. I think that's really really interesting, and I tend to agree. And I I think just generally the way school is structured, um, mm-hmm. that we, especially today, I feel like mm-hmm. kids are so expected to have an answer. We know what the answer yeah. is when we're teachers, and it's we poison. give them the assignment, and we want a specific thing back in a certain format. And that's how kids are now trained. They're trained to deliver what what they think someone wants. So then they go into the right. workforce and they repeat that kind of behavior, right? And I and I think it's absolutely tragic, and I think it's paralyzing for a lot of people. But mm-hmm. I also think we sometimes glamorize failure, and we're like, "Fail forward! It's going to be great. You're going to learn so much, right?" And then, yeah. in reality, like failure is actually really hard. Sometimes the stakes are high, and also failure can be really painful, right? Which is not to say right. we don't still want to have those experiences. So I'm kind of curious in your work, like, are you seeing a line there around like fail forward is a nice idea, but it's also are, are there jobs at risk? Are there you know is what is right. what are the consequences of those failures? Besides, right. so I think that's a I think that's a I think that's a good question, and it sort of points to another thing that uh, you know the part of the being the senior silverback mentor type that um, <laughs> that's part of my job, right? And so it's not that I want them to be wearing. I don't make sure that a a younger a new staffer is you know wearing you know, knee pads or help, you know, making sure that, that even if they fail, that they're not really failing because I didn't put them in a case where, um, but we sort of, we talk about, we talk about a noble failure, you know, which is like something that where you tried, you risked, you tried to reach beyond, maybe you didn't quite get there. But I think, yes, the stakes are, the stakes can be high, but if I put a 21-year-old brand new person in a position where their failure is say going to cost us a contract or cost us a sponsor or something, then I'm the asshole in that case. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. So if a lot of times what we will do is put them in something where they're not on the critical path is sort of what we'll say, 
we will have something where somebody like me is responsible for the overall execution of the task. And the new person is responsible for a piece. We need this component developed. We need this component analyzed. We need this thing designed. And so there are certain aspects of training wheels, right? I'm not going to throw them into uh, the lions, at least not the first time. Although sometimes I get reactions as though um, the lions, you know. And so I think that it behooves us as the senior staff who are in charge of these things. That's part of how you, um, that's one of the skills you have to develop. That's actually something that I get coached on and have been coached on before in that I have this, maybe it's self-deprecation, maybe it's um, depression. I don't know where it's coming from, but uh, there's this thing in the back of my mind that's always saying that if I can understand something, if it seems straightforward to Hank Alney, that means it is objectively straightforward. Like if I can just look at some problem and see, ah, you just do it with this and this and you do that and I could do that in a day. All right, fine. Are you staffer who's less than half my age? You should be able to do it just as well as I can. And it's sort of, you know, it's a colossal lack of empathy because I will uh, forget that it takes 12 months to gain a year's experience and that, you know, I have 30 more years of experience than these people are coming in. Literally 30 more years of experience. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, we're old. But, uh, the, uh, <laughs> so true. <laughs> and so what I've done in the past that I've tried, you know, that I've had, when I've had growth opportunities, it's when I'm having a discussion with a, uh, with a early career staff member and they're feeling very frustrated and down on themselves. And I'm looking at what did I bring to the situation? It's like, well, I didn't calibrate how complicated that task is or would be for somebody who's never approached this subject area, whatever we're working on before. Um, you know, like one example I have is there was a staff member who was brand new. They were developing some very small piece of this code or this code means software program that we were working on. And um, I was setting up code reviews and I put them in like one of the very first ones. And for me, the senior staffer who's been around for decades and, you know, is a peer with all of the more senior people in the group, this is just a bunch of colleagues sitting around bullshitting and talking about the code. You know, it's like the only thing we're missing is having some beers while we're doing it, right? We're just looking at the execution and saying, here, you know, you made these decisions, you dealt with it this way. Want to understand why, want to see that it's correct, that it's doing what we think it did. Why do you think it's correct? But it's all very non-threatening to me. I mean, it's very non-threatening for me for so many reasons. I'm a very senior, middle-aged white dude in the privileged mm-hmm. caste. There's not a there's not a privileged caste that I'm not a member of, right? So I I sort of forgot that in the case of a young staffer who was in their first time because what i saw is we're just going to be sitting here with hank and uh, elizabeth and this person this person what they saw is i'm sitting there with my boss with the chief scientist of the group with the you know the project manager and the senior task lead and i'm presenting my work and they will ask questions and for them they're just asking questions because they want to understand things but it's easy you sometimes forget how you're going to be received as a senior person by a junior person, if I say, I'm interested, and sometimes we do a bad job of it. Like if I say, why did you do it this way? Right. <laughs> often I mean, 
I'm interested in your decision to have done this this right, way. Right. Right. What it comes across as, hey, dumb fuck. <laughs> right. Why'd you do this stupid shit, you right. idiot? <laughs> right. The narratives that they play in their head have right. a lot to do with exactly. status and power and experience and all that stuff. Right. Yeah. And so <laughs> what I learned from that, I mean, and so then I had this staffer very upset. You know, we, we talked about it privately as sort of like, uh, I told them basically some of the stuff that I just told y'all. Here's what I envisioned. Here's how I saw it. I am so sorry. It was just, you know, obviously you would see it this way, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you're wrong that these people thought you were a moron. They don't. But it's not insane that you would think mm -hmm. that. And so that, that was a learning experience, you know, sort of learning how to, learning how to ask questions in a way that is, it's not that I want to sugarcoat things, right? I don't want to not ask a question if I need to know something. But sort of finding a way to like, like one, and you end up with a toolbox. And I, I, I've read a lot of books, and pretty I sound like somebody that has one of these books. But, you know, I have a toolbox of things like, uh, I'm really interested in X. Can you help me? <laughs> or saying, can you help me understand why you did Y? <laughs> Um, or, you know, this seems like, you know, an interesting choice. Tell me about it. Like asking open questions. There's this really good book that I read and I need to reread. It's called Humble Inquiry. I can't remember who read it, but, uh, it's, it's here in my office. That's somewhere. great. Somewhere too. I, I love the title. But, uh, oh, here it is. Here it is. And, uh, so whoever the hell that guy is. Oh, Edgar Schein. I was just talking yeah. about Edgar Schein this morning, actually. No way. He's a, a so, culture. Yeah, really, truly, I was just talking about Edgar Schein today. He's really the 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 sort of like creator of like culture and organizational sort right. of organizational theory. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and I mean the thing that I've learned, and that's sort of the thing that I was just talking about, is that like before I sort of sat and thought about, it, I didn't realize if you're a senior person, and somehow I managed to become a senior person. Um, I think I'm asking questions. What I'm actually doing in some cases, especially if there's a power differential, is issuing commands. I'm not mm -hmm. intentionally issuing commands, but mm -hmm. if I say, why did you do, why did you use method mm -hmm. Y? Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm thinking, I'm interested in your decision why you would use mm -hmm. method Y. What they're hearing is, don't use method Y. Right. <laughs> right. So, so then like learning to ask open-ended questions. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about your thought process here. Or... You know, this is really interesting. Can you tell me more about it? And genuinely open questions where, I mean, sometimes if I think you shouldn't have used that method, saying that instead of asking, why did uh, you do that? I'm and sort of so, curious. Uh, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I was done. Oh, no, I was just, I'm sort of curious. We are talking a lot about your work life and it sounds mm -hmm. like you are, it's something that gives you a lot of joy and that you're very passionate about and you probably spend mm -hmm. a lot of your time um, doing work, and I'm curious what else you what else you get to do. What are the things that you do and the the life you lead outside of the oh, the company and the work that you personal life? <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. Actually, the funny thing is that like I love sort of philosophizing about those things. I mean, that's obviously you can see how my enthusiasm popped up. But I definitely am a, uh, you know, there are people that work to live and there are people that live to work. I'm in the, I work to live. 
like um, a lot of the things that I really care about are happening outside of the office. So what do I like to do? I like to entertain people. Um, I like, I'm not doing stand-up or anything. I like to, uh, I like to cook. Um, I, uh, I started learning to cook when I was in graduate school, you know, on a serious basis when I, uh, I bought a copy of uh, Mastering the Art of French Cooking by Julia Child, basically mm-hmm. for nostalgia purposes, because my mother used to have a copy and I bought a copy and then I was flipping through and I said, what the hell, I can do this. And so I started doing that. I interacted. I used to like Chris Eisbach and I would cook together a little bit. Um, when, uh, when I was in graduate school, I was in Livermore, California. He was in Palo Alto in graduate school. Mm-hmm. And not as often as we would have liked, but we did get back and forth to see each other. And we see Dan Clifford sometimes mm-hmm. too. Um, and uh, so I started How come you never parties. saw me? Why didn't you ever call me? I was in California at that time. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Probably just, uh, you know. I was in Mountain didn't View. Want, didn't want, I didn't want people to think I knew you, you know. <laughs> I'm sort of bummed, like when Chris Eisbach was saying when he was at Stanford doing graduate work, I thought, right. I was right here. Yeah, you said you were in Los Gatos, right? We could have, we were, I was in Mountain View at the time. We could have all been hanging oh, out. Time. Who knew? And yeah. They could have been yeah. cooking for you. So you were right. cooking. I know you I'm could sorry? have been cooking for me. You could have been cooking yeah. for me. <laughs> well, you know, if y'all ever find yourself out in the DC area, that's uh, that's something that I will do for you. But uh, yeah. so that's sort of grown into a passion of mine. I love having, um, you know, I've got sort of like this group of people who you know, form the core, and then Katie, my partner, and I will have um, a group of uh, you know we like to have you know say eight people, and I will make something. Um, Beef bourguignon, prime rib, lamb, usually has protein. But, you know, I like to just make the full table, have the cheese plate, have people come out, sort of stand around, drink cocktails, drink wine, um, have all sorts of cool conversation, and then uh, and then actually as I've gotten older, go sleep it <laughs> off. Um, <laughs> but uh, totally. I really like to do that. Um I used to like rock climbing a lot, but about a decade ago, I got uh, I got hurt really bad on a on a rock climbing trip. Ended up in the hospital for about ten mm. days, and so uh, I don't really do that anymore. I uh, I like to bicycle. Um, I still play a lot of video games. I do recreational mathematics, which is uh, you know like uh, there are these websites where you can pull down different. Uh, you know, math problems that are require some level of computational um, knowledge in order to solve them, but then you also require some discrete mathematics interest mm-hmm. there. Um, do you do that with? Do you do that solo, or do you do that with a group? Or is it collaborative? That, that one I do. I do kind of solo. Although I will collaborate sometimes if I'm like I have one or two people who are have similar interests, like uh, people I work with, or and I will. Um, you know, we'll sort of talk over mm-hmm. how, uh, you know, approaches to some of these different things. I'm sure there are other things. I, I still like Legos and it's nice, you know, it's just sort of like being at this point in my life. If I want a cool Lego set, when I was a kid, I had to figure out how to wait to finagle it. Now I just go buy it. And, <laughs> uh, I, and so, uh, I've got, I'd show y'all downstairs. I've got a big, uh, four foot long uh, Star Wars Imperial Star Destroyer made entirely of Lego. Awesome. awesome. I've got a, a huge uh, the Coliseum is down there. 
My son is working. I think Gray on is going to have to get to. I know. My son, Gray, is really into Legos. He's working on the Titanic. Oh, yes. That's actually a kit that's on my list. I almost bought it. And then I looked at the price tag and I said, mm. yeah, it's an expensive one. And, it, and <laughs> Maybe. he's had a, a good time with it so far. I'm not sure where he's going no, to display no, it when it's finished. <laughs> right. It's huge. <laughs> Hank, when you think back over the last 30 or so years, what are you most proud of personally? What am I most proud of personally? Well, I mean, there's one sort of negative thing. I think I shed. So I was on the debate team, right, when we were in school. Um, and there were sort of two things there. A, it was a good experience. I learned a lot of stuff. But I also, I'll be blunt. Debaters, people on debate teams, at least those that are men, uh, you sort of, there's a real douchebag culture mm -hmm. there that I think infected me more than I wanted to admit. I also, at that point, was being sort of dishonest with myself about where my passions lay, about what I was interested in. Now, I mean, I could characterize it as I tried different things, right? But it was also like some of my motivation was negative. It's like, yeah, fuck you, dad. I'll do what mm -hmm. I want. And so I like to think that I've shed some of those things and that I have become empathetic I have become a lot more skilled in looking at my emotions and uh, setting a good example of men who are uh, able to express themselves emotionally and be honest about what they're thinking, um, which is, you know, we're culturally programmed not to do that. Mm -hmm. I'm proud of some of the work that I've done to serve others. And that's not necessarily in like, I, I mean, I do raise money for say an, for an anti-suicide campaign and for uh, MS, but it was also more about, you know, I've become a, uh, a resource to people who are feeling down and just need somebody to mm -hmm. talk to. So, I mean, that's not necessarily big time. I'm not going to be in newspaper for any of that stuff, mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, when I sit and I think, why am I glad I'm Hank? Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that is one of the mm -hmm. things is that if somebody's feeling rotten about something, they come and talk mm -hmm. to me. You know, it's like one of the things back to work, Carla, I was the number of times I've been sitting in my office and I've had one of these, I've had other career staffers come into my office and like one was in, he said like he was going through a really painful breakup mm. with his uh, living um, partner. And talking about like, yep, been there, done that, went through divorce. It sucks. You're going to be okay. Here are some, you know, some self-care things you can do, listening to what they're saying. Sometimes you just, um, when I've talked to Jocelyn Swigger about some of this stuff, you know, she has a good way of putting it. She said, what do you need me to be here? Mm. Are you looking for a sounding board? Are you looking for advice? Mm -hmm. And uh, I found that to be really useful. Um, yep, I love that. And so, you know, I'm not, nobody's going to, there's not going to be a big statue of me somewhere, but you know, I'm, I'm kind of okay with that. <laughs> um, yeah. When people, when I talk to people about what do I want my legacy to be at work, you know, there doesn't need to be the Hank Olney building or the Hank Olney program. 
but I think it'd be really cool if like in a decade or so when I retire, if I'm lucky, um, to, for there to be, say, say there were half a dozen or 10 staffers at the applied physics lab who are having great careers and doing interesting things and who are thinking, you know, it was pretty good to be working with Hank. He, uh, he helped me get a good start and he helped me figure out who I am. And, uh, if, if that, if that were true, then that would be, that would be a hell of a legacy. You meant I think I've done it with like one or two people. I've got a lot more to do. Well, you you mentioned retiring maybe in 10 years. When you think about the future, what are you envisioning mm-hmm. for yourself? What are the questions that you're wrestling um, with? Or maybe the questions you've already resolved about what you're going to do, who you're going to be when you grow up. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, first, I don't know. I mean, I've always said that my... Uh, my goal is that, you know, when I'm 55, which will be in a couple of years that I want to be working because I want to, not because I have to, yeah. maybe I'll make it there. Again, it's a question of, you know, like thinking about how incredibly privileged we are. It's, uh, I don't need to work now if I just have to adjust my lifestyle. But uh, it's a good question. I don't have a a solid answer. It's not something where I sat down and said, when I retire, I will be doing this and this and this. Um, I like mentoring, especially like mentoring uh, um, people who are just getting started. Um, And uh, I like the idea that I can be a resource to them as somebody who is in a senior position, who has a lot of scar tissue, who has stepped on the landmines, knows where they are, understands that you, the young person, you're going to step on the landmines yourself because that's how we learn. We learn things the hard way, no matter what, right? And it might be that even that it's okay, right? That uh, that it's not my job to make you dodge them. It's just my job to pick you up and help you after, uh, after you've stepped on it. But, you know, if I could be doing something where I'm of use to people like that, I don't know, as a coach, as a mentor, as a... Uh, as a consultant of some sort, I can imagine doing that. Well, you know, or, or I could write pornographic novels. That was another thing I was thinking about. <laughs> hey. You're a multi-talented person, Hang. The sky's seriously, right. and there's probably a huge market for them. <laughs> right? well, you know. I mean, that's so. I mean, yeah, there. I didn't do this because I'm trying to because of pornography, but you know, I, I have noticed like with the thing about pulling things apart, trying to understand how they work. I got off of, uh, I think it was cause I was on my Amazon unlimited or whatever the hell that's called my Kindle mm-hmm. unlimited. Yeah, yeah. There was a mm-hmm. book. It's called like the, the anatomy of story by this guy, Truby. It's this famous book for people mm-hmm. who are trying to write screenplays. Mm-hmm. And I read the book, not because if, if I have a screenplay in me, that's where it belongs. It does not <laughs> Okay. But, <laughs> but, but the, uh, but I found that like my engineer mindset, I find these books fascinating. I bought a couple mm-hmm. more and I've been reading them just because I like to sort of pull things apart, look at the story, understand the pieces, understand how the whole works together, and then be able to watch movies with some of these things in mind and, uh, mm-hmm. and see how some of those things are, uh, working together. 
And I think that some of that comes from like this coaching mindset that I'm finding sneaking up mm-hmm. on me that I want to understand there are going to people be people that have a lot higher achievements than I will have in my field. And I'm fine, right? I'm fine with that. But I could be part of helping people reach their their potential or helping people improve. And some of it is like helping them like unlock their potential. Some of it is also like helping them shed some bullshit. Mm-hmm. Like uh, it gets it gets on me a little bit when a junior person addresses me as Dr. Almy. Right? I say, I'm Hank. Mm-hmm. And just this idea that just because I'm a senior, that that the only people think you should respect your elders are they all happen to be elders, <laughs> right? Who who think that. Um that respect is earned mm-hmm. and helping people develop some level of self-confidence and understanding that just because you're new, just because you're less senior than me, say, doesn't mean that you don't have something to contribute and doesn't mean that you, uh, that you don't have, uh, that you have to do what I say. You know, I, I'm, I tell young staffers at APL all the time, we pay you enough to expect you to have an opinion. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I don't know how I would do it, but if I'm not in like a formal line leadership position at the Applied Physics Laboratory, if I retire in 10 years, if I could find a way, and I haven't thought about how I would do it, but it's a good question. It's a good thing to be thinking about because, you know, in 10 years, we're all going to be in our 60s. Yeah. That's right. Does, I mean, does that does that sort of answer? What... It definitely does, and and I I yeah I don't know what I'll be doing in ten years either. I'm so in the moment right now that um, it feels like a mm-hmm. long way away. But um, but that idea that in in our fifties and beyond, we have a lot of wisdom to offer, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. giving some reassurance and guidance to people that are coming up behind us. I think it's very fulfilling, mm-hmm. especially yeah, I mean, when there are people that things. want your guidance. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean the uh, yeah, what I found like in when we're rating people, and this is, I mean, this is not every organization is the same, but one of the things I like about sort of the APL culture, APL is applied physics lab, and or the groups that I happen to be in, is that one of the things, one of the ways we judge senior staff members, not only what can you do, like how many computer programs have you written? How many programs have you brought to successful conclusion? That's important, but also um, what are you doing to pull up the next generation? What are you doing to train the next generation of leaders? Mm -hmm. How are you making it so that when you're gone, um, we'll still be moving along? Because like if I set up this big organization and if it's something where if I walk away, the whole thing collapses like a house of cards and just stops functioning, that that's actually an indictment of my yeah, leadership absolutely. skills. Absolutely, yeah. And so we're trying to, and we have some staff who just we're not they're not interested in that. Yeah. They want to mm-hmm. come in, do their equations, leave, and I mean you can do that. I'm not going to force you to do anything, but those people are end up getting rated lower. Right. Good. I think that sounds like a system that's built for sustainability. That's good. 
Yeah. How do you be <laughs> a good answer? That's what we tell ourselves. That's right. That's yeah. That's what we tell ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we should do our well flashback to high school. What do oh, you think? Fun. I'm there. <laughs> All right. Um, well, we have about, we usually ask about 10 questions and, um, we, uh, you, you are more than welcome to pass if you feel like, oh, that question, I don't want to answer that one. Um, and then of course, uh, you know, you can always lie. That's the other option. Sounds good. So, all right. right, So I guess I'll, I'll get us started. You probably know the questions, but question number one is who was your high school crush? So I guess if I'm sort of like looking at the very first one, I had a crush on Laura Cade when we were in eighth grade. Um, I think most of us Crushable. Did. But, uh, <laughs> but it, I think it was because, yeah, I mean, it was interesting how uh, we, uh, there were a bunch of us who were like an all boys for two years. Then we come to eighth grade and all those hormones and everything. So, yeah. Okay. There, I'll say that. Yeah, we suddenly emerged these girls. So weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, Carla was. We, you remember you and I had. A, we were locker mates. I had the locker above yours when we were in eighth grade. Oh my gosh, really? I didn't remember yeah. that. That's so cool. <laughs> I just remembered that. Uh, I remember my locker was usually my locker was usually next to Alex Ritchie throughout school like pretty much forever it was me and then alex Ritchie and then tim reedy like we were always in line so that i remember all the r's alphabetically yeah you were a lifer hank correct Mm -hmm. thinking back over the thousands of meals from loyla gore what was your favorite dish (laughs) I liked the uh, chicken patties with white gravy and those really terrible. Now that I think about them, the, but those uh, those rolls that we had that I like to sop up all that gravy with them. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. I love the chicken patties too. We've heard some good roll stories. Yeah, <laughs> chicken patty stories too. <laughs> yes. Um, what? So, question number three: What nineteen mm-hmm. eighties fad or trend? activity were you really into back in the day the only thing i can think of is the music like i still listen to like on the depeche mode are they 80s no those are 80s 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 yeah and so i i still i still listen to that stuff and i infected my kid (laughs) nice (laughs) lucky her i know (laughs) such good music all right question four what car did you drive in high school and how did it meet its demise? Oh, uh, let's see. So the first one I drove was this 1980s Buick piece of shit station wagon. I have the slightest idea what happened to that. But the one that I really, you know, when I'm thinking about the questions you're asking, I drove this uh, the Chevy Citation. It was um, brown. I think <laughs> oil pump, something like that. <laughs> I mean, but it was like even when it was running, it was meeting its demise, right? I don't know. <laughs> it was just meeting its demise on a daily basis. Is that a sedan? I'm kind of picturing like a police car looking oh, thing. The the, uh, the Chevy Citation, I think the closest shape 
of a modern car would be like a Prius. Oh. It's like a Prius, but shape. Gotcha. Mm. Gotcha. All right. I feel like someone else may have talked about having a Chevy Citation might, because I feel it like might we be Bruce talk- Montgomery. He and I, Bruce oh, Montgomery yes. and I both had citations, and we talked about them. <laughs> we we talked <laughs> about the name, like who names their car a Citation? Right. Like <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, so you mentioned music being important. So our question number five is: What song might be on the soundtrack? That you couldn't you couldn't live without having that song on the soundtrack of your high school experience or like on the mixtape. It has to be on the mixtape. <laughs> okay, it would be either um, "If You Leave" by OMG or "Precious" by Depeche Mode. Uh, yeah. Okay. My brother just saw Depeche Mode in concert this week, and I'm so jealous. He went to yeah. see them, and I'm like, oh, I should have been there. You're 12 years younger. How it's did, not even I, your music. <laughs> how did they? How are they able to play in a wheelchair? <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> um, okay, sorry. Um, what high school teacher had the greatest influence on you? Um, Bill Weir. He was my advisor. I think he only taught me like sophomore geometry. Mm-hmm. Maybe I had it. I had it for one, but he was my advisor year after year after year. And so he would uh, listen to my philosophizing and analysis and patiently, <laughs> but then he would sort of give me mm-hmm. feedback. Um, you know, second would probably be uh, Gene Gardenhire. Um, he had that really cool yeah. trick of being able to write on the board without looking at the board. Right. Amazing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, you know, he, I, I remember him sitting down and very gently and nicely, but nonetheless firmly saying, you know, Hank, you're really smart, but you're, uh, you're screwing this up. You're not working hard enough mm-hmm. here. Nice. It sounds like him. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> I had him for freshman math. So I remember mm-hmm. Gene Gardenhire well. All right. Number seven, what artifact from your high school years should you have put in a time capsule that really represents you in high school? Maybe that sweater I was wearing on my senior page photo. <laughs> <laughs> Say more. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I just really liked it. <laughs> Oh, I love that. For our our listeners who don't have the yearbook handy, describe the sweater. So it is dark colored, right? Maybe the sweater is navy or black, but then it has patches of fabric in like gray and darker colors that are sort of sewn onto it. Um, And 
I still to this day sort of like that outfit of wearing, I wear chinos and a t-shirt and some sort of sweater. I don't have patches all over it anymore, <laughs> but with the sleeves pushed up and that's just a look yep. that I like even now. I love it. I do too. That's cool. Consistency. <laughs> You know, it's like having a good uniform that somehow expresses right. yourself. You don't have to overthink. One thing you can check off your box. It's why Steve Jobs wore that turtleneck every every day. Yeah. Right. <laughs> do you have a regret? Do you have a regret from high school? Um, I'm sure I do. Um, <laughs> so the answer is yes. I'm trying to figure out which one. Right. I think that. Uh, so let's say one regret that's probably like living in fantasy land. So I'm, um, I've got ADHD, you know, non-trivial case. And it was sort of like back then we were in a place where that just didn't get treated or even diagnosed. Mm -hmm. And I compensated pretty well for that. I mean, I've had some academic successes and, uh, and I've sort of come to terms with, uh, with how things went when I was, uh, when it was the academy, you know, cause like when I look back on my academy years, I actually feel pretty, pretty stupid. Like I wasn't that mm. good, but some of that had to do with the fact that I was constantly falling down, not turning assignments on time, not getting things done. I felt like there are a bunch more that I could have mm. accomplished and more things that I could have learned if I had access to proper care mm. there. Mm but it was sort of a combination of the time that we lived in and the um, you know, people, you know, it wasn't, uh, there was something shameful about mm. that mm. back then. And I wish that I had been able to advocate for my, I guess I wish I had advocated for myself. I wish I had known what the hell was going on and advocated for myself. Cause then looking back on that, I'd be, I'd have a lot fewer, uh, visions of myself being a moron mm -hmm. when I was in school. It's really fascinating how um, many of our classmates have shared that that's been kind of a realization they've had later in life. And I'm thinking about how my impression of you falling short academically, I, I had no impression of that at all. Your, your brain power was very evident to me as a classmate. Now, I didn't know whether you turned in assignments or not. That's a very different thing, right? Right. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's maybe one of the reasons why when we've heard from some of our classmates how much of a struggle some of the ADHD symptoms were for them throughout school, um, I think, you know, if you're sitting in class with someone who's getting it, contributing, having great insight, sharing them. It's, you don't notice it. I don't think so much. Um, but it, mm -hmm. it is, uh, I can see why it, over time kind of dropping the ball a lot would lead you to think, God, I'm just not that great at the school stuff. You know, yeah. I came out of school feeling severely happy. Yeah, that's so mm -hmm. interesting. Probably says more about my brain than me, or you know, than than the school. Yeah. But uh, interesting. You know, that's just the way it was. And so I've been in therapy for a long time dealing with that. Yeah. If you could go back in time, this kind of relates to the previous question. If you could go back in time mm -hmm. and tell your high school self something about the future, what would it be? Mm -hmm. Um. 
none of this stuff is going to matter that much. Yeah. Like I think about like even talking about like some of the feeling like I was, you know, a moron or something like that. That's true. I mean, I did, I had a very negative self image and I've struggled with that. And that's something I've worked very hard to try to, uh, come to terms with. But like, when I look back at, at the Academy time, especially what's really there is I feel the privilege of having gone to school with such a great group of people and a lot of the happy, cool stuff, but it's sort of more hazy and good feeling E, but like the big achievements and the big screw ups, none of them matter. I don't even remember them. Right. And so what, I guess I tell my, my, uh, my teenage self, you know, just take yourself a little less seriously. Um, in 30 years, this is going to be 30 years ago and, uh, you're doing fine. All right. Last question. Question 10. What would be the title of your high school memoir? My high school memoir? He had no torsos in his chest freezer. <laughs> no, really, he didn't. It's actually a, a purely truthful autobiography. Wow. Well, I love it. That's that's great. I feel like maybe your book about how to tell a story and have a hook. You nailed mm -hmm. it. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Oh, great. Oh, my gosh. It was so good. to Yeah, it was so great to chat with you. So great to catch up. Yeah. Our reunion well, for, uh... is like uh, it's like 10 months away. And so right. uh, hopefully we'll get through a few more of these amazing conversations. And we hope we see you there. I hope you're planning on right. making it. Absolutely. I've missed one of the five-year um, reunions. Uh, I think I missed 20. Well, I remember having such a great conversation with you at El Pinto. Um, I don't know if it was the last one or the one before that, but it'll be fun to catch up again and, and hear what's yeah. new. And I'm so surprised about the cooking and the Julia Child. I oh, mean, really? that's so awesome. You know, it's it's actually, I'm sort of a, I, I sometimes joke that I'm a black sheep in the family and that, so Mark and John uh, both worked professionally. Oh, you know, that's, in that's like, right. I mean, you know, dishwasher, mm -hmm. prep cook, line mm -hmm. cook. Yeah. Mark, I think, did some time Scala, chef think, in a different restaurant. Right. right. And uh, my mom was a great cook, ran a catering company for a while. And uh, I didn't really pick it up until I was... Uh, you know, in my twenties and my wife at the time and I got tired of eating hamburgers. <laughs> uh, wonderful. Well, I just yeah. rewatched, I just rewatched Julia, Julie and Julia pretty, or Julia and Julia pretty recently. Mm -hmm. The one about where she decides she's going to cook everything from. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. It was really fun. I've forgotten how much I enjoyed that. I, I loved Amy Adams as an actress and that was a fun yeah. movie to watch. And I was sort of inspired. And then I, opened up my copy of which I've never cooked anything from. And I was like, this is too hard. <laughs> I'm going, <laughs> I'm 
going back this to Smitten there, Kitchen. <laughs> there's a, there's a great uh, there's a great YouTube channel. Uh, the guy calls himself the Anti Chef. I think his name is Jamie. Okay. And he has the series that he said Jamie and Julia. He was inspired by uh, Julia okay. and Julia, but he like is doing recipes out of Julia Child. But he also does recipes from a bunch of different cooks, and uh, I find it to be uh, really interesting. Cool. Really fun. That's to watch. so cool. I want to look that up. Oh, it was so good to see you. Good to see you too. Thanks so much. Thank you, Hank. Jessica and Carla's High School Reunion is written, directed, and edited by Carla Silver and Jessica Slade. Our theme music, True Sight, is by Jared Matt Greenberg. Please subscribe and listen on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.